see everyone here week 12. Uh, indeed, this is uh, the last public meeting for the semester. And uh, Brendan catches up with Calvin, and he made the mistake he told me earlier this week of saying to Calvin, it's our last catch-up ever. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> 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 I have here a picture. I have here a picture. I have. There we go. I have here a picture of St. Helen's Bishop Bent. This old sandstone building is located in the heart of London's financial district. Surrounded by modern glass buildings, it seems a little out of place. Why is it there? Somehow it survived the bombings of World War II. Is it a monument to the past? A relic? A piece of history? Yet every Tuesday and Thursday you would see people in their suits walking for an hour during their lunch break. For me. Why? Many prophets in the past century have declared God dead, yet every Tuesday and Thursday this sandstone building a relic of a bygone era is packed with people. I have here a picture of the church I used to go to in Sydney, St. Mark's South Festival. There are around 20 to 30 people that met on a Sunday morning during COVID, maybe 10. Why did it shrink? Because the average age of the church was over 60. I can think of a hundred different things that could be doing on a Sunday morning. Why church? Why do people gather for this thing called church? One thing I hear from people on campus is that they don't mind Jesus. They don't like church. Statistics are a wonderful thing. We can make them say whatever we want. So here we go. <laughs> uh, I think this is the National Community Life Survey. And I came across this graphic. And according to this, people have more confidence in federal parliament than in churches. <laughs> and if you're doing politics, you're like, of course. Total trust in the parliament. Talking to your friends, it probably rings true. If that's the case, what is the point of church? Why do 20 to 30 people still gather on a Sunday morning in South Hurstville? Is it to be a community? A shelter where you express your religion in safety and freedom? What is the point of St. Helens in the heart of London? Is their job to be a beacon for morality, to stand against the tide of secularization? What is church for? Uh, today we're going to be uh, finishing up in the book of Exodus, uh, and we'll be looking at the Old Testament church. And we're actually going to get a glimpse as to what the purpose of church is. Uh, in our series on Exodus, we've skipped what seems like the boring bits. Uh, in chapters 25 to 31, we had instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Today, in chapters 35 to 40, we have the instructions repeated as they actually build the tabernacle. And the bits that excite the engineers amongst us. For most of us, it's actually easier to read the titles and to actually skim through it. 
Yet it's quite ignored. Because in volume, these sections make up about a third of the book of Exodus. So we have to ask, why is a third of the book of Exodus dedicated to details as to how the tabernacle is to be built? Well, let's find out. Uh, to understand the end of Exodus, we're actually going to have to quickly skip to chapters 25 to 31. And in these chapters, we have where God embarks, if you like, on his building project. Uh, and it's where we have the instructions as to what his building was to be like. So first point, God's building. And on the screen, it's Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. If you have a Bible, open it up. Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, he shall receive a contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine, fine linen, goat's hairs, tan, ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance incense, incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall. Now, every building has a purpose. What's the purpose for God's building? Well, if we go to the next slide, it's there in verse 8. You can kind of see it there. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That is, this is the place where God will move in, this is the place where God will live with them. And so, what does a building where God lives in actually look like? And that's where the details come in. Now, when it comes to a building, details matter. The material you use, you use matter. Mathira and I used to live in an apartment in Turner, and we found out a few months that the whole thing was uh, covered with flammable clay. For us, it was fine. One of the first levels. So the thing kind of opened flame. We could jump off. We were actually fine. <laughs> but hundreds of apartments in camera are covered with this stuff. And they're all facing issues with insurance companies at the moment. Details matter. The materials you build with matter. But not only do the details matter, when you add the details to a building, the design of a building actually tells you something about its purpose. So I have here a picture. Now this building is designed to be an echo chamber. So when you whisper something at the front, you should hear it at the back. He here knows what building this is? The Opera House. No, it's in the Opera House. Um, I have here another picture. I don't know who that fellow is. Oh well. Uh, this is a room that belongs to a building in Canberra. The room physically floats inside the building. So that when the building vibrates, this room stays still. It's said to be the quietest room on the planet. Does anyone know which building this belongs to this building in Asia? Asia. Asia. That's right. They use it to test for listening devices below what the human ear can hear. You can actually tell something of the purpose of the building by how it's designed. And so when it comes to chapters 25 to 31, our job is to actually add up all these details. And so ask the question, what picture do we get? we add up these details. 
Uh, a few years ago, I literally spent about 20 hours going through these chapters and trying to draw it out. And I commend that exercise to you. It's really worthwhile. But afterwards, after about 20 hours, I thought to myself, ah, Kevin, there's this thing called Google Images. <laughs> so, here's a picture of the tabernacle from Pinterest. <laughs> Have a look. I want to keep this up there. But while the image is up there, I'm going to read to you Exodus 26, verses 31 to 37, and see if you can imagine and wrap the two. Exodus 26, verse 31. And you shall make me a veil. I think it's the veil in the middle there. Of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and the fine, fine linen. And they shall be made of cherubim, skillfully woven things with. So it should be pictures of angels on that veil. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil should separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So on the very inside is the most holy place with the ark. And that's the most holy place in the section on your right, the holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and you shall put the table there on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine, fine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pools of acacia and overlay them with gold. The hook shall be of gold. And you shall cast five bases of bronze cord, which is the curtain closest to your light. Here's a description of the very center of God's dwelling. What's it supposed to teach us? What does this design tell us about God? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're allowed to walk in. Okay? You can close your eyes and imagine if you want to. If you're a tuck that falls asleep, keep them open. Now, that's a hypothetical, because if you walked in, you'd be struck dead. But imagine for a moment that you could actually pull back the veil and walk in. You're on holy ground. You look to your left and what do you see? There's an intricately designed lampstand made out of pure gold. It's flowery in appearance and on it are seven branches that come out that remind you of a tree. A tree of life almost. And it shines light on the rest of the room. Now on the right there on the table is on the right of the table overlaid with gold and it's almost like this place is furnished. Like God that dwells there. But the most striking thing is the veil in front of you in the middle of the room. It's made of a magnificent fabric of purple, blue, scarlet intertwined. It's almost like a gazing into heaven itself. And it's embroidered with cherubim, angels almost as if they were standing guard, so you cannot pass. What's behind this veil? Well, it's the most holy place where the ark is kept. Now imagine for a moment, if you got a glimpse, what would you see? You would see the ark, it's rectangular, a little over a meter long, overlaid with pure gold, inside it are the tablets of stone, where God's promises and laws to Israel are good. 
But what strikes you most is the top of the ark, the cover. It too is overlaid with gold. And on it are two cherubim, two angels on either side, facing each other with their wings outstretched. It's almost like a throne. And you realize that it's from this throne, with two angels on either side, that God speaks to his people. Hopefully you haven't fallen asleep. Open your eyes if you close them. What image do you get? It's actually an image of heaven on earth. On the outside of the courtyard, if we go to the next picture, and you can just box it up. We go to the next slide. You can see that there are layers, okay? Uh, as you go further in, only priests are allowed. As you get to the most holy place, only the high priest is allowed. But the materials reflect this. Outside, things are built of bronze. On the inside, everything is overlaid with gold. We have here a picture of what it's like for God to, dwell, to live with his people. With each layer is increasing beauty, glory, heaviness. Well, with each layer, there's more and more restricted access to God. It's no small thing that a holy God chooses to live with sinful Israel. This is a little glimpse of heaven on earth. Can you see what a privilege it is? And can you see what a terrible thing the golden calf was? We have here an image of God's holiness. And straight away, in the very next chapter, a vivid imagery of idolatry. And that's chapters 25 to 31. Good work, everyone. All right, let's fast forward to chapters 35 to 40. The instructions are largely repeated as God's people build it. Now, the remarkable thing about these chapters is that the design of the tabernacle is largely the same. That is, the golden calf was terrible, but God's forgiveness of them was complete. I said last week that God doesn't forget your sins. He deals with it through Jesus at the cross. But after he's dealt with them, he remembers them no more. And we have this wonderful picture in these uh, chapters of God's people. And there's this refrain that keeps coming up again and again. It's going to come up here. I've actually deleted a lot of references because it won't stick on one slide. But what do you see repeated again? They do things as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Unlike the golden cup, the people obey. Everyone contributes. Uh, next verse on the slides, 35-21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meaning. It didn't matter if you brought gold, bronze, wood. Everyone. To the point where 36.6, next slide, Moses says this, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from breathing. So the material they had was sufficient for all the work. And imagine if at church on Sunday, the minister got up and said, Please stop giving. <laughs> we have enough. We have plenty. That's what's happening here. The picture of life under God is vastly different. The 
picture of life under Pharaoh. When they were slaves, work was hard. Work here is joyful. It's the people's response to the grace that God has shown them. And isn't it a wonderful reminder that when we understand God's grace, we actually realize that what we have isn't our own. One thing I've learned over the years is that the most generous people often are the wealthiest people. The most generous people are actually those who have actually grown independent on God. There's actually something about wealth that actually just sees us as thinking that it's our own. That we've earned it. That we have the right to it. But rather, the most generous people are those, in my experience, who have the least. That is, if you understand the grace of God, you foster a heart of God. And so can I encourage you as students to foster that heart of generosity now? You may have little, and genuinely little. I read this morning in the newspaper that students are doing welfare marriages. That because they don't have enough money, they're doing these fake weddings to get extra payments. You may have little. As a side note, if you're doing that, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> but if your heart isn't generous now, it actually won't be generous when you have much. So Exodus 36 3, it says this, has this. Moses had received the contributions already, but they kept coming every morning bringing free food. It's not legalism, it's grace, it's generosity. That's God's people, and we finish the book with God's presence. What happens once everything is built? Have a look. Next slide. Compare Exodus 39 43 with Genesis 1 31. In fact, in your groups, just for one minute, compare the two. What do you notice about those two verses? Okay, one minute. What do you notice about those two verses? We'll come out together. Okay, one minute. Go for it.
a new era in the life of God's people. And at the very end of the chapter, chapter 40, end of the book, the cloud descends and fills the tabernacle. Why this cloud? Well, when the royal standard is flying above Buckingham Palace, we know the king is present. The cloud is visible evidence that God is with them. And so we end with a picture of God dwelling with Israel. And so here ends Exodus. What do you reckon about this ending? You think it's a good ending? Do you feel chipped? How do you feel about this ending? I remember as a kid getting to see the steepest road in the world. I lived in New Zealand at the time. We got to pack our car and it was this beautiful road trip because it's New Zealand. We got to drive past these beautiful sea cliff bridges. We arrived in the country town of Dunedin. Probably not a country town, but it's New Zealand. <laughs> it's this beautiful, ornate little city and we arrived at the road, the steepest road in the world. And I remember looking at it going, wow, it's a road. <laughs> Looks like any other road. Just a little bit steeper. <laughs> in Exodus, we've had the burning bush. We've had plagues. We've had the Passover. We've had the Red Sea part, and God's people go through. Does this ending feel like an anti-climax? If it does, can I suggest to you that this is where we've been heading the whole time? I've got here a verse from the beginning of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 12. And this is what God said to Moses. But I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That is the whole point, the whole way through, is for God's people to serve God, to worship God. The goal of the Old Testament church, if you like, is to be with God. And not since Eden has this happened. And we finish with a picture of the glory of God with them, such that not even Moses can enter the tabernacle. In one sense, this is the end point of salvation. And I dare say, this is the point of the New Testament church as well. To be with God is to serve Him and worship Him. Uh, the Bible ends with this wonderful picture, Revelation 21. And it says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This city, as you read the chapter, is a cube shaped like a tabernacle. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We end with a picture with us, people redeemed by Jesus, dwelling with God. In Exodus, not even Moses could enter the tabernacle and the glory of God the We will walk in the new heaven and the new earth, bathing in God's presence, dwelling with him for
is the point of church? And what is it? It's simply to be. It's to gather. It's to serve and worship God. And that's a taste of what is to come. But also, can I suggest to you, that's actually not the most direct fulfillment of Exodus 4. And the question I want you to wrestle with as we end of Exodus is whether Israel has arrived yet. Are they there? Is this actually the end? In one sense, yes, God is with them. But in another sense, no. And as we finish with a cloud that settles, but a cloud that also goes, but as Exodus doesn't end with God dwelling, it actually ends with Israel traveling. Exodus 40 isn't the end. It's actually the beginning. It's the beginning of Israel's priesthood where they witness to the nations. And so the more direct fulfillment of Exodus 40 is actually Matthew 28. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 28, and we're going to look at Jesus' words after his resurrection. Matthew 28. On the screen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the page. As we await the picture of Revelation 21, we are traveling, aren't we? But as we do that, God is with us, and he's with us always to the end of the age. What's the point of church? It's simply to be, to dwell with God. But while we're traveling, what's our mission? It's to witness God. It's to witness that he is our redeemer. It's to make disciples of all nations. It's to urge people to meet Jesus. <coughs> People think that church is a relic of the past. But in my experience, there is nothing else like it. Where else in the heart of London do a few hundred gather during their lunch break? People say that church is dying. I disagree. I think community is dying. There are less people gathering across the board. There are less people in RSL clubs. There are less people on a Saturday morning watching their kids play soccer. Individualism in Australia has won the day. But with the decline of community across the board, I doubt that there are any other gatherings of a few hundred in the heart of London on a weekday lunchtime. Why do they gather? Because God has saved them. See, Mark South's personal may only be 20 to 30 people. But nowhere else can you be in a room where the manager of a bank is rubbing shoulders with a touring musician. Where you have a teenager whose parents struggle with alcohol abuse and is going from home to home. Playing soccer with the kid who goes to one of city's top private schools. They meet willingly, joyfully. Why? Because they equally share in the grace of that is, when God's people gather, it's a taste of heaven on earth. When we meet for NTE, there's going to be 2,000 people from all across Australia singing to God. There is nothing else like it. 
Some of you have tasted this. Some of you have seen this. But let me finish with this. Don't confuse the experience of church with being part of church. But as it's possible to be around Christian community and to not personally know the God who has saved us. I read the Bible with a young man for two years. He understood Jesus. He understood everything about salvation. But he just couldn't make And he just couldn't give his life to you. He kept coming. He kept being welcome. But all he ever tasted was the entree. It's only a taste. <coughs> Rather, when Jesus returns, be with us there. We will walk in the presence of God our Savior. Come to Jesus. And don't confuse the experience of being part of, part of the church with being part of the church being saved by the Lord Let me finish the Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful image of you being with us. Thank you for this beautiful thing of Christian community that we're united by your salvation. And so help us to continue to grow in our love for one another as we meet. Keep witnessing to this world. And we pray that it will help ask those hard questions of whether we have personally come to know you as our Savior. So that we're not just tasting this community, but being in this community. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.